0: What are the announcements? Same old two announcements. We're going to have an Israel conference, and that's beginning to come together. Um really interesting when I was in a, up at, well, I'm going to start another, another point. Uh, Vita is going to come, and she's going to do a tremendous job on Saturday, one of the sessions on Saturday morning, talking about BDS. Now, I would imagine, anybody here know what BDS is? About two of you. Uh, that's typical of of America. It's probably a higher percentage know about BDS here than than in America. Probably two percent of Americans know what BDS is. It stands for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And it's a huge movement that's been percolating for about ten years. Um, there are a number of states have passed anti-BDS legislation, which is good. There's some move at the at the federal level but it's the idea from those who are anti-israel and anti-semitic it's a subtle form of anti-semitism uh to boycott israel because they are a an apartheid nation b they are occupying the the land of the palestinians they're an occupying force and c they are involved in in genocide and it gets really squirrely uh because what they want to do is to get everybody not to buy any product that has uh, been developed or come out of Israel. That means you've got to get rid of your cell phone. That means you've got to get rid of anything with an Intel chip. That means that if you've got anything by Hewlett Packard, you've got to get rid of that, uh, because Hewlett Packard has huge R&D in Israel, and Intel has huge R&D in Israel, and uh, Apple has huge uh, uh, R&D research and development in Israel. So. You know, and then then they want to they they have passed labeling laws in Europe, where anything that is a product that comes out of the West Bank has to be labeled that it was made with a, a label. You know, made made with uh, in in the West Bank where the where the Israeli government is an occupying force, and, and this kind of a thing. And and you need to understand this. This is really important because you're going to run into somebody somewhere. Uh, like I have, I ran into somebody who's a relative at, at, at the gym and just talking, you know, casually about Israel. Next thing I know, I'm hearing that Israel's an occupying force and their apartheid nation and everything. And, and if you don't have your little three points of elevator speech ready to go, then you just lost the argument. We have to be prepared. Same thing with the gospel at a moment's notice. So this is important anyway. So Vita's coming, and she was going to tell us that she was bringing um, a, a young man who has t- actually taken her place as so she's moved to a different area of responsibility with, with uh, Stand With Us. And um, and I said, that'd be fine. That'd be great. Go ahead and, and bring him. And then we were at a dinner for all the speakers on Sunday night. Uh there was a young lady sitting on the other side of Pam from me, and Pam was telling her that that what we we still needed a speaker on uh, anti-Semitism or the new anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, and she said, "Well, my boyfriend talks about that a lot. He speaks on college and high school campuses uh, about that." So she gave me his name and information, and I was writing an email to him yesterday morning. And since he also works with Stand With Us, I thought, well, I'm going to call Vita and see if she knows who he is. And it's the same guy that she had asked me to bring. So this guy has a tremendous resume. He um, uh, went to, I forget the name of the his university in Israel, and majored in, uh, in counterterrorism uh, studies and uh, some other things related to that. And he's been involved in talking about these kinds of things for a long time. So I, I've never been less than than overwhelmed and, and thoroughly impressed by the speakers from Stand With Us. They're very well trained. So that that will be an exceptional opportunity. So be sure to plan on your calendar for that Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday morning, and then Sunday night. Uh, we also need to remember, we've been, a lot of you have been praying for Dan Ingram's church, that they would get a, a new place to meet and get that lease signed. The lease is in hand. It hasn't been signed yet, but it's ready for them to, to sign, and then they'll have a place to meet. So that's a real thanks to prayer. Let's go ahead and uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful that we have you to come to in prayer. Father, you have provided so much for us, and through Jesus Christ we have direct access to your throne of grace. He is our high priest. He is the one who has opened up the veil so that we have access to you. And what a privilege that is that we can come into the very presence of the creator God of the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and that we can focus upon Who you are and how you have worked so magnificently in human history. And for that, we give you praise. And Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to understand what we're studying tonight and uh, understand your hand in history, as even now we face what appears to many of us to be a horrendous election, and yet we know that you are still in control. And give us the strength, the wisdom, the courage to um, continue into what appears to be further deterioration and decline in this nation and that we may stand forth as Paul says as shining lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation and we pray this in Christ's name amen all right open your bibles with me to first samuel chapter 16 and tonight i want to do a flyover we finished the first part of the book first samuel 1 through 15 which deals with the first 7 chapters dealt with the person of Samuel and how God provided a new prophet in a dark time to bring light to the nation. And then we looked at the second division, which started in chapter 8 and goes through chapter, chapter 15, and that focused on the personage of, of Saul, the first um, uh, anointed, divinely anointed king of Israel. There's one King that was anointed before, but not under god's direction, and uh, that was the son of Gideon uh, who was uh, who was named Ahimelech and uh, or Abimelech rather and that's always uh, uh, one of my favorite trivia questions that most people slip up on who's the first person anointed king of Israel? The text in judges nine says that that Abimelech was uh, he reigned for two years in Shechem in Shechem. So anyway, Saul is the first divinely authorized and anointed king uh, of the United Kingdom of Israel. And in these chapters, we see the transition from Saul uh, to David. And so that's going to be our focus tonight. Now I just want to say a word because a couple of people have asked me already how the event went on Sunday. It went very well. Uh, this was the first time they have done an event like this in, uh, in Dallas and it was held at uh, Temple Shalom, which is a reformed uh, synagogue in north dallas and The purpose for this was that one individual who is a very very large, generous uh, donor uh, for the um, for APAC wanted to put on an event in Dallas area for Jews and for Christians to educate them on issues related to Israel. And to bring in a lot of people who were good speakers on different topics related to Israel, but especially uh, a number of them were are, were key people uh, who've spoken at APAC uh, at the National policy Conference, including uh, the national president of APAC and it was all uh, very very well done and she 's from Dallas by the way. And it was all very well done. They had uh, three plenary sessions. Hers was one, and then there was another individual uh, who's founder of an organization. You may want to look up the website, Why Israel Matters. And he has a lot of excellent information there just from a secular viewpoint of the importance uh, of Israel, her existence, and how she benefits and blesses the whole world uh, through the very presence of Israel, through technology, through medicine, through just a host of different things. And so that was well done. And then there were around 15 or 16 b- smaller breakout sessions. Attendance was a little over 300 total. And uh, one breakout session was on BDS, and that was the most uh, most well-attended breakout session, you might say. There were about 65 or 70 in that one breakout session I went to. They had another one that was at the same time as mine. I had two breakout sessions that started at about 1.30 on Sunday afternoon, and those were the second most well-attended uh, sessions because uh, Jewish people have a tremendous curiosity as well as a suspicion about why evangelical Christians support Israel and they have a lot of misconceptions. Christians, I found, have a lot of misconceptions about the Jewish community, and the Jewish community has a lot of misconceptions about the the Christian community. And so uh, it's important to talk about this. And and as um, Pam overheard two men talking in the hall before the session, is they don't understand how Christians can all of a sudden, it seems to them, all of a sudden be pro-Jewish and pro-Israel when you've got uh, close to uh, 1,800 years of Christian anti-Semitism that has produced some of the most horrible uh, persecution and opposition toward any race in in the history of mankind. And so that question has to be answered. And um, uh, we did a good job, of, uh, or I did a good job of doing that, I think, because with a background in church history, you have to be able to understand it. Those men did not ask their question when it came time to Q&A. So that tells me I must have answered their question. But uh, it was a good group. There were It was well attended. The people seemed to be very responsive, uh, Very um, uh, had really, really good feedback. So uh, I was very glad that I had that opportunity to go and, and to speak. Okay, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we just want to look at the broad overview of Samuel here. Uh, Samuel is the first personage in 1 Samuel, the first eight chapters. And then starting in 9, I think I said 7 earlier, but starting in 9, you have the rise of Saul. uh, And then you have his decline from chapter 16 to 31 as David rises. And so what you'll see, it's not precise in terms of chapter to chapter. That would have been interesting if the uh, whoever divided the Old Testament into chapters had recognized that, that it, the, the narrative goes back and forth between David and Saul and actually used that as a basis for his chapter divisions. But there are too many chapters that well, the first five or six verses talk about Saul or David, and then the rest of the chapter talks about the other one. So it's not a clean uh, outline or a clean division. But that's going to be our focus. And many Christians over the years I've heard just love to study the life of David for a variety of reasons. But I think one reason that many of us like to study the life of David is because David was a flawed human being like many of us. He had tremendous spiritual failures, but he also had some remarkable spiritual successes. And when you look at the scripture, God's description of David is what matters. He said David is a man after God's own heart. And that's a contrast with Saul who was a man after the people's heart. He was the kind of uh, of king that the people looked for. They wanted to have a king like all of the other nations, and so God gave them a king like all of the other nations. And I believe he was he was a believer but he was a a failure as a believer whereas uh, there were times that David was a failure, but he wasn't a failure as a believer. And that gives great encouragement, or should to all of us, that no matter how greatly we fail, that that we may still find our names inscribed in God's uh, list of the great faith heroes of the church age. You look at those that are listed in Hebrews 11 as the great heroes of faith down through the Old Testament period, and there are some people there who... Who really really uh disobeyed God and had incredible i mean even Samuel the womanizer is is listed there uh, and Jephthah, who sacrificed his daughter to God as a burnt offering um, so it shows that that god's way of evaluating us is based on on grace that he understands that we are sinners and that we are flawed and that when we trust in him, that we go counter to our default position, that that is a great basis for rejoicing in the heavens. And, And that's the issue with David. Being a man after God's own heart doesn't mean that David always made the right decision. He didn't. It doesn't mean that David didn't commit incredibly gross sins. He did. But what it means is that, like many of us, that our core heart's desire is that we want to grow as Christians. We want to know the truth. We want to live out the truth to the best of our ability. But we have a problem with our gnarly little old sin natures that constantly get in the way. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, too often we find ourselves doing what we don't want to do, and not doing what we do want to do, because we're not really walking by the Spirit, and we have that ongoing spiritual struggle. So I think that many of us relate to David. We like to read the Psalms that David wrote, and as we go through this section, we'll look at the Psalms that David wrote in the context of of our study of uh, 1 of Samuel and of his life, and that just brings it home so much more. Many of David's Psalms do not have a historical indicator in them, but uh, there's about uh, 20 or so that do have a historical indicator. And so we'll go through those because that's just a great way to understand how a believer thinks and works through problems and learns to reflect upon God in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. Historically and archeologically, there's been a great debate over the existence of David. And in fact, up until uh, fairly recently, about 20 years ago, there was no historical uh, validation of the existence of anybody named David. When you look at the Bible and we see this great kingdom that David uh, established and, and hit the expansion of, the, uh, of Israel under David, and then we look at how great that that kingdom reached under its apex, uh, under under Solomon then we realized that that this was an awesome empire in the ancient world, and yet when you read ancient histories, you go to university and you you study uh, the curriculum there. If you study ancient history, which most people don't, you study Egypt and you study the Mesopotamian cultures and you study about Babylon and especially Greece and Rome, and there's no mention of probably the greatest kingdom that existed, even though it was short, was the kingdom of David and Solomon. And many liberals, because their default position is even if, if that if the Bible says it, it probably didn't happen, and unless you can find it archaeologically uh there's no support for the bible, and it's their default position is it's not true unless we find it mentioned somewhere whereas as a as a bible believing christian it's true, and eventually we'll probably find some sort of validation, but just because we haven't found it yet doesn't mean that we've gotten to the end of the story yet. One of the great examples of that was that liberals love to tout the fact in the late 19th century that the Bible talked about this great kingdom of the Hittites and they had never found any evidence of a Hittite nation, and so people were throwing out their Bible because the Bible talked about a people that didn't actually exist. Then in 1927, they discovered the capital of the Hittite Empire at Bogazkoy in Turkey, and all of a sudden, all of those liberals had mud in their face. But, you know, just as in politics, liberals in theology never quite get mud to stick. You know, no matter what happens, uh, they, it's like liberalism is made out of Teflon and nothing sticks. And they can still teach... Uh, tremendous uh, distortions and lies about the Bible and archaeology. Uh, and people will believe it because they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But in 1993 or ninety-four, there was a discovery made of an inscription uh, up near a, an ancient gate near a place called Tel Dan. The tell, of course, describes a hill or a mound, which is where some various layers of civilization have been. And it was this ancient site of Dan. Uh, And the Bible talks about uh, the extent of Israel being from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was just about the farthest point in the north. Beersheba was the farthest point in the south. And in this description, and you can see these uh, four or five uh, letters that are highlighted in white down here, on the on the picture that says the house of david and this was a, a stele, uh, which was a monument that was uh, written by Hazael uh the king of Aram who had killed Ben-hadad after he was anointed by by Elisha and that's mentioned in 2 Kings uh chapter 8 uh verses uh, 7 through through 15 And in this inscription, uh, Hazael of Damascus has uh, defeated the Israelite city of Dan, which was part of the northern kingdom. And in that battle, uh, we know from the scripture that Jehoram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, were both defeated by Hazael. And that's described in in, uh, that passage in 2 Kings chapter 8. And in this inscription, the Aramean king claims to have killed both of these kings, the kings of Israel and the king of uh, Judea. And that basically parallels what we have in the Scripture, except the Scripture says that it's Jehu who ended up killing the two kings in a fairly uh, uh, bloody, divinely authorized uh, coup to bring discipline there, but they had both been defeated in battle uh, by uh, Hazael. And so he erects this monument, and it's important to note that that he thinks it is so significant that he has defeated um, the king of, of Judah. He's defeated Ahaziah that he def- defines him or he identifies him with the term House of David. Because and that implies that the house of David must have been something very, very great for him to brag about defeating the house of David, and uh, this was a, an extremely big deal. And it also uh, ended up that and it also indicates that if David were just some some tribal chieftain living in the backwoods of Judea. That it wouldn't be such a big deal that he would put it on a on a steely. So it indicates that David was in the house of David, and David himself was something uh, significant. That he was well known, and even 150 years after his death, uh, Hazael wanted to brag about the fact that he defeated uh, the house of David. So it was the discovery of that inscription that made it clear that there is historical archaeological verification of the existence of the house of David. Nothing's ever been discovered that invalidates the Scripture. They may not have discovered anything related to the existence of Abraham or Isaac and Jacob outside of the Scripture, but then uh, you, you have to have something inscribed in, as the, in a per, fairly permanent way, like on a rock or a stele or a monument, for, for it to survive. So we're introduced here to David, and I want to just, as I said, just do a flyover. Now, what happens is we see a shift that occurs, a shift of emphasis from from, uh, Saul in chapter 15 to David in chapter 16. If we look at right there what we covered the last few lessons in chapter 15, that Samuel brought the indictment and the judgment against Saul— And in in verse 26 of chapter 15, he says that because Saul had rejected or repudiated the word of the Lord, the Lord had rejected or repudiated him from being king over Israel. That doesn't mean he's fired instantly. He's still the king, and that's important to understand because he is going to continue to rule as a carnal, spiritually rebellious individual, and he will rule over Israel. But if you look at verse 28, Samuel says that the Lord had torn the kingdom of Israel from him. He says, the Lord has torn this kingdom of Israel from you today, and it's been given to a neighbor of yours. Or, And the word there translated neighbor is the idea of a companion, maybe a, a friend or a compatriot, something of that nature. And so this is the announcement that that is a foreshadowing of the shift that's taking place. And from this point on, we'll start to i give greater definition to that uh to that term and so uh, at the end of chapter fifteen, we saw that uh, Samuel goes back to his his home in Ramah Saul goes back to his house in Gibeah, and Samuel mourns the failure of Saul, and the Lord also regretted we saw that was an anthropopathism. Uh, He doesn't uh, change his mind. That's the same word that we see in verse 29, that the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And then the Lord comes to Samuel, gives him enough time to mourn. The Lord comes to him in verse 1 and says, How long are you going to mourn for Saul? I have rejected him. The same word we find back in verse 26 from raiding over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. And go, I'm sending you to Jesse, the Benjamin, for I provided myself a king from among his sons. And so what we see here in ver- ch- chapter 16 through chapter 20, in these five chapters, uh, we see how God is going to prom- promote and authenticate David as the Messianic king. Now, we've studied this before, that the Hebrew word mashach, that's the noun, uh, excuse me, that's the verb, and Mashiach, the noun, refers to the anointed one. And this is one that God has appointed to a specific position. So you can remember that through this uh, rhyming of those two words, appoint and anoint, that this is someone God has appointed to a specific task. And as such, the kings of Israel, as the anointed ones, stand as a type or a picture of the future messianic king, who is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens is we study the Old Testament, we we study a lot of stories, we study a lot of narratives, and when we study a story, we study a narrative, uh, we have to realize that this isn't telling us what to do, it's describing circumstances and situations in real-time scenarios that if we are teaching in the New Testament, we can find examples of biblical truth. But prescriptive data is our prescriptions or commands are found in the New Testament. What we just see in these stories is a picture of what happened, describing how things happened. And we'll see pictures of the grace of God. We'll see pictures of Uh, human failure, we see illustrations of sin, and we see uh, illustrations of God's deliverance. We also see broader patterns. And I want to tell you that that we have a pattern that takes place here that I think is important to help understand some of the application that we see here. There's a pattern in the Saul-David relationship here, before Saul becomes, I mean, before David becomes the, the enthroned king that helps us to understand something about the church age. There is a king who is ruling the domain, who is a spiritual failure. He is carnal. He operates on his sin nature continuously. And he is a, uh, he is a foreshadowing of the rule of Satan over the earth and Saul serves as a type as it were a type of satan persecuting david who is the messiah and the domain of israel during this time is a picture of the the rule over the earth at this time in history at our time in history so that we live in a in a world where Satan has been defeated just as Saul was, had had the kingdom torn from him. But Satan is still the prince and the power of the air. St- Satan is still the ruler of this age. He is uh, still and the, the, has dominion. And during this age, Jesus is like David was during during this particular time. He is anointed, but he is not enthroned. That's a problem that you have with both amillennialism and progressive dispensationalism. They see Jesus as being enthroned in heaven after the ascension. But what we learn from Revelation chapter 2 and, and 3 uh, is uh, uh, chapter 3 verse 20 is that Jesus is seated on the right hand of God. He is on his father's throne. He is not on his throne. And this is the same situation. David is anointed, but he is not enthroned yet. And he is going to be persecuted by the prior king. And so during this period of time that probably lasted for maybe at least seven or eight years, David is persecuted by the former king. And he has to leave everyone behind, and he is uh, being uh, mistreated. And he gathers to himself a group of what appear to the world to be 'er ne'er-do-wells. They become known as his band of mighty men. And during this time, they are being trained and equipped for their future position once David takes the throne to be the, the key players in his future kingdom and the Davidic kingdom is a type of the future uh, messianic kingdom. And the band of mighty men is a type or a shadow of the church-age believer who is viewed by the kingdom of the earth around us as being uh, worthless, as being uh, not significant or important. And so we are uh, cast outcasts, as it were, like david 's mighty men, and we are being trained though for a future position to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ once he is enthroned upon his his kingdom. So what we see here, what we 're going to see through these chapters are are various depictions and various patterns that uh, reflect upon Uh, the church age and also reflect upon the future rule and reign of Jesus Christ. But one of the patterns that we're going to see is that the role of the messianic king, the role of the Messiah is to protect his people. And David again and again is protecting his people. We never saw that with Saul. We saw it a little bit at the beginning. He defeated some of the enemies at the beginning, but then, uh, he is more concerned about establishing his own kingdom. He doesn't fulfill God's plans. We also see uh, the pattern of David uh, going to the Lord again and again. When a decision needs to be made, David will stop and inquire of the Lord. This is not what we saw Saul doing, uh, especially during the latter part of his reign before his failure. He's too headstrong. He's going to do it his way, but David stops and inquires of the Lord. So he is a pattern of the ideal messianic king who follows uh, God the Father and seeks his guidance and seeks his will. So what we see at the beginning here is that that God directs Samuel to anoint David, sends him to Bethlehem, tells him to go, and so he doesn't uh, arouse the suspicions of Saul. the Lord says, go to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice when he arrives. uh, The elders there are a little bit fearful, but Samuel addresses them and says, you need to consecrate yourselves and uh, sanctify yourselves uh, prior to the sacrifice. And then he also consecrates Jesse and his son. Now, Jesse is David's father, and he is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz from the biblical book of Ruth and so we'll trace back that genealogy to see how God in his grace worked that out. But uh God is designing this so that he'll bring Jesse into town. Bethlehem was very small at this time. And he bring bring uh, Jesse's family into town. He brings his 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 favorite boys, his older sons, and David's the the uh the youngest one. And so he is out with the shepherds cuz you know how it is the 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 dirty most menial jobs in the family when you have a lot of kids always tends to roll down to the youngest one and so he's the youngest and he's not looked up to and he's not uh, valued he's overlooked and this is we see that typologically in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 that the servant of Yahweh who is the Messiah is one who is not valued. We didn't look upon his appearance and value it. We didn't see him as something significant. And so that's a depiction of Jesus coming to his people and his people just didn't think he was a big deal. They didn't think he was very special. He's overlooked just as David was overlooked. And so uh, Jesse runs his boys out in front of Uh, in front of Samuel, and Samuel looks on the outside, and we look at verse 7, and the Lord says something very significant, a verse you ought to underline. Uh, The Lord says, "...do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." And, uh, unfortunately, as we have entered into a an age where people can see uh, political candidates ever since the election of Warren G. Harding, where you had more pictures and you began to, and, and, and you had some film at that time, and uh, people could see what the presidential candidate looked like, uh, people have put a focus on the external rather than the internal. And, of course, the classic example is that of the debates between uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon in the 1960 presidential election. Nixon looked like uh, some sort of ogre because he had a heavy 5 o'clock shadow, and people say that really he didn't come across well. And so people today in our existential postmodern world are more concerned about appearances than substance. And so we've created a whole... Uh, government and political system that operates on packaging and making everything look good now we 've got all the sound bites down and we 've got the the quick little videos on on YouTube and other things like that and it 's all uh, a violation of this principle that God uh, hammers Samuel with is don 't look on the outside, look on the inside. Character matters. And unfortunately, the character that we get in a presidential election is not necessarily a good character. I don't think we have anyone with a good character right now, uh, and that's because we have—they reflect the culture in which we live. And uh, and and nevertheless, we have to choose between one of these candidates, and uh, we have to choose that which is. Uh, better than the other one. One may be a minus ten, and one may be a minus nine point nine, but you have to select the one that is, even if it's marginal. I think Thomas Sowell said last week that if you vote for, um, in his opinion, he said if you vote for Donald Trump, it's like ho- it's like playing Russian roulette with the future of the country. For those of you who don't know firearms, that means you have one, ch- you have five chances out of six of surviving. And if you vote for Hillary, he said, you're you're basically sticking a shotgun against your head and you're pulling the trigger. That means there's no chance that the country will survive. And he says, if you don't vote, you're a quitter. He didn't say it quite that strongly, but that's what he meant. He said, you've just given up. That's being a quitter. So you've got to look at a lot of other factors. Character does matter, but when you have two people whose characters are as uh, bad as they are, then you have to look at other other aspects. But um, the focal point here is that God looks at the heart. Ideally, we would have somebody who had a character that we could admire. That's not the case. So anyway, the, the bottom line of it in these first 16 verses, and I'm never going to get through all of this tonight if, at the rate I'm going, is that... God instructs Samuel to anoint David, and he isn't even admired or respected by his family. And then we have a shift, and we start talking about Saul. And in verse 14, we learn that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord... uh, Troubled him. Now, if you have a New American Standard, I think it's an evil spirit, which is a better, much better translation. It's an evil spirit, and so you can look at and circle these words that you'll see running through here. Uh, evil is mentioned two or three times in these verses, and troubling is mentioned two or three times. And what we have here is a uh, an expression of demon influence. So we have to look at at, at the significance of this in the study. Of demonism and the role of Satan in history and in human government. And that um, he is being oppressed externally because it says that the, uh, verse 16, the distressing spirit from God, notice God uses fallen angels to carry out his purposes of divine discipline. We'll have to look at that. And that it is upon you, not in you. Very important to look at those prepositions. It is not the Hebrew preposition for in which is demon possession, it is external, it is upon you. He is being oppressed externally uh, as part of divine discipline. And uh, demon possession is not resolved by music, but uh, the results of demonic oppression are. And so they're looking for a Gabor, a mighty man of valor, um, who can come and has musical talents to soothe the soul of Saul temporarily and David does that. David is brought out. So we see God's providential uh, care in bringing David to the foreground. David doesn't have to promote himself. God is the one who is promoting him. And as a result of his ministry to Saul, uh, Saul loves him greatly. Now, one one point here is a lot of people uh, are, are influenced by silly little cartoons and children's Bible story books, and they think that Jonathan and David, Jonathan is Saul's son, David is, of course, the one we're speaking about, that they're young, that they're like little boys or at least uh, pre-adolescent youth. But that—I I, let me suggest that's not the case. We'll get into it in more detail. Jonathan is conceivably 15 or 20 years older than David. Jonathan's already been a great military hero uh, throughout several chapters that we have studied. David is probably a 16 or 17 year old young man. He is clearly a post-puberty uh, young man. He has he, he when he describes what he has done in guarding and protecting the sheep, he has engaged in hand-to-hand combat with uh, lions and with bears. That indicates that he has a strongly developed physique and musculature. He's not like a 10- a, a or 11-year-old kid who doesn't have any strength. He's not doing it in, in the power of the Spirit like uh, Sam, Samson did with the miraculous power. He's doing it out of his own skill and ability. So he was very likely uh, 16, 17, or even 18 years of age, Probably not quite that quite eighteen yet because he's not old enough to go out with the military, but he has his own he's made saul's armor bearer here in verse uh, verse twenty one which indicates that he's a, a little bit older he's not just a small uh, a small child then chapter seventeen, we come on one of the great chapters a chapter that emphasizes that the battle is the Lord's. It's a lengthy chapter. It's a story that many of us are familiar with, the story of David and Goliath, a battle that is taking place in the Valley of Elos uh, that is just a little bit uh, west of uh, Bethlehem or Bethlehem, the home of David. And we're told that the Philistines have gathered and uh, in battle uh, against the Israelites and they have a champion uh, interesting background to understand who Goliath is but but the culture of the Philistines is very Greek it's a lot like the what happens in the Trojan War when Achilles and Hector come out as champions on the field of battle and whoever defeats the other one is going to be that that side wins It's it's a uh, sudden death playoff with two champions, one from each side, determining who takes, winner take all. And the Israelites are timid and greatly afraid, according to verse 11. And when David shows up, it shows that they don't have any Bible doctrine. Because when David shows up and he hears the taunt from Goliath, He says, Well, who's this uncircumcised Philistine twice in verse 26? And again in verse 36, he identifies him as an uncircumcised Philistine. And why is that important? We need to talk about that. Circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promised this land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what David is saying is, He has no right to this land. God gave it to us. The battle is the Lord's. Let's go defeat him. You know, what's the problem? And so uh, he volunteers uh, saw once his credentials, and he talks about what he did when he was a sh- shepherd boy that he uh, killed the lion whenever a lion or whenever a bear came against, um, came against the sheep, he would go out and he would kill them by hand uh, now that's that 's very possible. A few years ago, I ran ac- when, after my dad died, I ran across uh, genealogical records. Uh, that my folks had had, and one was on his side of the family, one on my mother's side of the family. And the one on my mother's side of the family was quite interesting. If you've ever read Louis L'Amour, I that's how I got through seminary, sort of bubblegum for the mind. Uh, he has these great Western heroes that could, you know, they, they, they jumped, uh, they ran faster than a speeding bullet, and they were more powerful than a locomotive, and all of these things, they were faster than anybody else. Well, one of my ancestors... Uh, walked from Hope, Arkansas to Nacogdoches uh, pulling a mule with his wife and one-year-old on it, and then he went off and hired out to a bunch of settlers up on the Red River, and that's what he did. He hunted bear, and and this I read this on the Texas State Historical uh, Society uh, website that in one encounter, uh, bears chasing him down a trail, and he hid behind a tree when the bear went by him All he had was his knife. He reached over and stabbed the bear from the opposite side so the bear would think he was being attacked from the other side. And he plunged his knife into the heart of the bear, killing the bear uh, eventually. And then another time, he's in a dugout canoe on the Red River, and they're attacked by a bear who overturns his canoe, and he gets up, and, of course, his powder's wet because this is like 1820. And um, you had flintlocks. And so he started clubbing the bear. First time he hit the bear over the head, he broke the stock, so all he's got is the barrel. And then he beat the bear to death with the barrel of the rifle. Those people were real men. Okay, David is like that. So when people say, oh, that's impossible for him to kill a bear or a lion with his bare hands, no, it's not. We live in a pansy generation today. Who People who don't know what real men can do and re- that's what built this country was real men who could do things like that. David was cut from that cloth, but he trusted the Lord. That's the that's the additional factor. He trusted in the Lord, and uh, that gave him a pattern just in our life. When we're doing our day-to-day jobs, we need to learn to trust the Lord. And then when the big battles come, then we've practiced it, and God is able to take care of us, and we're able to trust in him. And so David kills Goliath. And then he's awarded and rewarded by, uh, by Saul. And uh, God is the one ultimately, of course, who is rewarding him and elevating him in the eyes of the people. So after the defeat of Goliath, uh, he's going to get uh, Saul's oldest daughter to be his wife. And, uh, uh, and that doesn't quite work out. And so the next one down, Michelle is going to be uh, given to David and uh, and she's in love with David, but also uh, her brother, Jonathan, the oldest son, uh, loves David. They become close, close friends, closer than brothers. And Jonathan and David made a covenant, we're told, three times as you go through the narrative. There's this covenant that's made between them. Jonathan is pictured as not only a great warrior, but a man of integrity, and he's very, very different. Uh, from his father, and, but as David uh, realizes the acclaim of the people and that he is uh, elevated and they praise him more and more, singing hymns, extolling his virtue, Saul becomes more and more jealous, and we continue to see this this murderous rage uh, develop in saul in fact i 've listed as i 've gone through this. I've come up with some different numbers, because some of these are a little difficult to identify, but at least 14 different attempts by Saul to kill David. Saul is clearly out of fellowship. He is clearly in rebellion against God. He is clearly operating totally on his sin nature. And David, as we will see in two different situations. David is alone with Saul, has every opportunity. In fact, his men are saying, Kill him, kill him. God's given you this. It must be God's will. Look at the circumstances. How many Christians mess up their lives because they make circumstantial decisions based on God's will and think it's God's will? Uh, David's men said, Saul's right there, he's asleep. All you have to do is slide your sword right in there, and he's dead, and you're king. And David says, it's never right to rebel against authority. That's what, See, that was the great condemnation against Saul, was rebellion is the sin of divination. And he refuses to rebel against Saul, even when Saul is wrong. No matter how wrong Saul got, that's real hard for us to understand. Saul is out to murder him. So can't David just just defend himself and kill Saul? And David says, I can't lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. The, the, the end doesn't justify the means. Uh, two wrongs don't make a right, so I'm not going to do it. And so uh, throughout this period... In these chapters, from chapter uh, 18 and 19 and 20, we see this, that David's living with Saul, but Saul continues to try to put his life in danger when he gives uh, his his daughter, Michelle, uh, to Saul, I mean, to David, his wife. He says, I've got a great idea for a dowry. And what he's really thinking is, I don't need to be the one to kill David. I need to let the Philistines do it for me. And so he says, this is what I want for a dowry. I want you to bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins. That means you've got to go out there and circumcise a hundred Philistines. That probably means you have to kill them first because they won't get, let you get that close otherwise. And to kill a hundred Philistines, that eas- isn't going to be that easy, and he's probably going to lose his life. Well, David is very grace-oriented. And so David goes out, and he brings him two hundred Philistine foreskins. He goes. He doubles it, and God blesses him and gives him the gives him the victory. Saul continues to um, uh, have these uh, encounters with this distressing or this evil spirit. In fact, one time he twice tries to kill. That's why I, I missed that when I counted up some time ago. Is that in verse uh, chapter eighteen, verse eleven? Uh, David. It says at the end, David escaped his presence twice. So that's two indicates two different attempts. So right now, I've come up with it, at least fourteen different attempts, and uh, and yet throughout this time, you also have the bright light of Jonathan's loyalty to David. Uh, chapter twenty, David uh, Jonathan chose his loyalty to to David, and in fact, he has. Uh, enters into a, covenant, a second covenant there uh, with with David in order to, to protect him. And then what we see in the, uh, the next chapter, or in chapter 21, is we see another shift to take place. And really this goes from 21 to 31. We see this pattern of uh, Saul continuously attacking David, he seems like he's more concerned about killing David than he is about killing other enemies or destroying the Philistines or com- finishing the job of uh, killing the Amalekites. Now, if you think about that, that sort of sounds a little bit like like uh, what happens in modern politics. See, when sin reigns in a man's soul, it distorts their values. So what we have is a president who is more concerned about spewing hatred towards his political opponents than he is dealing with the enemy of Islam or the enemy of Iran. And that just shows that this man is totally under the control of his sin nature, and nothing can be more destructive of a nation than to have a leader who operates on his own narcissistic uh, sense of reality and he's just feeding his sin nature. So what we have is a picture of this kind of thing with with um, uh, with Saul and David. And in chapter 21, we see that David has escaped from Jerusalem, and that he has gone to the cave of Adullam, uh, which is uh, somewhere near um, in Gedi. He's in the cave of Adullam, and we'll come. Ba- he'll come back there later on. And he begins to gather a group of those around him. His father's house, his brothers uh, join him. And then in verse 2, we read, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. This will expand later to 600 men. But this is his cadre. This will be the core of his future army. This will be the core of his his administration. And he's trying to hide from Saul. And so, uh, first of all, we read... That as he as he escapes, he's going to go in uh, chapter twenty. He, he, and he's, he's as he's esca- oh, that was chapter twenty two. I'm sorry, my eyes slid to the wrong part of the page. In <coughs> chapter twenty one, is David is escaping. He goes from from the Temple Mount north, slightly northwest, where the Hebrew University is located today, on Mount Scopus. And on Mount Scopus, this is where. Uh, the, the Nob, the city of the priest was located. And David goes there seeking bread, seeking sustenance for those who are escaping with him. And so uh, Ahimelech, the priest, is going to uh, aid him and uh, give him some of the bread that's sanctified for the priest because, uh, and this will be used as an example by the Lord Jesus Christ later, that that the law was made for men. And, and here were these hungry men, and David fed them uh with the With the bread for the priests, and that this was totally uh acceptable, but there's a spy out there watching them who's going to report to to Saul that uh, uh that David and his men have escaped, and that the priests have aided them and so in chapter twenty two after we learn a little bit about uh, uh, after we learn a little bit about uh David's mighty men that's the scene shifts back in verse six to Saul. And when he hears about what the priests have done, uh, he orders their execution, and nobody will do it. But this Doeg, the Edomite, who was the spy that reported on this, is not Jew- uh, Jewish. He's not an Israelite. He's an Edomite. He's a distant cousin, a descendant of Esau from Edom. And so he says that he will do it, and so he turns out to be the uh, the great assassin who is going to kill almost all of the priests. And so Abiathar, uh, who is the um, uh, son of Ahimelech, escapes. All the others are killed. He escapes, and he will be the next high priest. And he joins David and tells David what Saul has done in killing uh, the Lord's priests. And so David is going to protect him. This is his function as, as the Messiah. And then we're told that that um, uh, David learned that the Philistines were attacking another city down in the south, a city called Kila. And here we have a picture. Here, this is a cave of Adullam. Was I, I misspoke earlier? I had him over, uh, over here near G- in Getty. Cave of Adullam is over here, uh, east of, uh, or, excuse me, west of Bethlehem, just south of there is Kila, and this town is being attacked. It's an is, Israelite uh, town or village and it's being attacked by the philistines and so when david hears he what does he do he doesn't do like saul and say well let's immediately go take action he doesn't he, he inquires of the lord so we're told in verse 2 he inquires of the lord should i attack the philistines and god says go attack the philistines save kyla but then when he tells his men his men says man we're afraid to do this how do we know this is god's will um this is going to be tough. The Philistines outnumber us, and they they're tougher than we are and So David went back and asked the Lord a second time, and the Lord said, uh, "Go to Kilate, I will deliver the Philistines into your hands and so he tells his men, and they go with him, and they um, uh, strike a savage blow we're told against the um, uh, against the philistines and Then word gets back to Saul that David is down there, and this is another attempt on Saul. He decides to gather his troops to go after David, and uh, he's going to attack David and try uh, try to kill him. And yet in all of this, uh, David is uh, focused on the Lord, and he says, well, Lord, do I stay here in Kila or do I leave? And the Lord says, get out of town, because they're going to betray you to Saul. And so he left town now with 600 men, and he escapes because he's walking with the Lord. And we see this contrast between uh, Saul and, and, and David. And he goes and he's hiding. He goes to the wilderness of Ziph. He goes down through the wilderness of Maon. And then he goes to this area called the rock that, that they named the Rock of Escape. Uh, because Saul's been chasing him, and then he hears about the Philistines somewhere else, and so he, ha- he's, he gets diverted. That's the providence of God. He diverts Saul's attention. That's described in chapter 23, verses uh, 27 and 20, or 26 and 27. Um, and so Saul has to go uh, uh, fend off the Philistines, and this allows David to escape. So they call that place the Rock of Escape. And then he goes from there in verse 29 down to En And En is located down here right along the coast, just north of where Masada is located. And somewhere up uh, about probably about 15 miles north of there is where Qumran is located. A beautiful, beautiful site. Um, on my Israel trips lately, we haven't been able to go there for, for a couple of different reasons, usually related to schedule and heat. But hopefully, we'll make it this 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 next time. So, David, we're told, uh, uh, is now is wandering through the wilderness, trying to escape from Saul. And in chapter twenty four, we have the first of those in- incidences where where Saul goes into a cave. It's somewhat humorous. Saul goes into a cave to be, um, I mean, excuse me. David and his men are hiding in this cave. Saul goes in the cave to to relieve himself and he's just feet from David, and his men say, kill him. Just, you just got to stick your sword out there, and you'll stab him, and you'll die. And and David, it says, da- David cut off the hem of his garment. And then it says that David's heart uh, sort of nagged at him, but that's not the, the, the word in the Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew is it smote him. It's the same word used for killing somebody, uh, I mean, th- he is under serious conviction, his conscience has been seriously violated. And so, uh, when when Saul comes out of the cave, then he goes out of the cave and he apologizes for even cutting off part of his robe, because that violated the, the authority of the king. And so, and the king is still the Lord's anointed. Uh, chapter 25 is a long chapter, a very interesting story, I'll just quickly summarize. The chapter begins with the death of Samuel, and it ends with the loss of his wife, uh, Michelle, who is married off by Saul to someone else. In between, we're told the story of, it's a funny story, it's the story of a man named Nabal. Nabal is a Hebrew word for a fool, and he acts the fool. He's got a beautiful, wise wife. She's a great pattern for biblical womanhood, and he is a pattern of pagan uh, foolishness. And when David uh, sends uh, messengers to ask him to provide uh, some logistics for him, some food and some wine, um, he, he disrespects David's messengers greatly. He ridicules them, sends them off. And when David gets the message, David just loses his temper. And he wants to go back and kill Nabal, and he's on his way. But but the, one of the messengers has told Abigail what happened, and she is very wise, and she loads up as much food as she can, gets on, on her mule and heads down to head off David. And she pleads with him, gives him a solid rationale for why he shouldn't kill Nabal, and David listens to her. And so he doesn't do that. He, this keeps him from committing a horrible sin. And she goes back. She tells uh, Nabal, Nabal, uh, uh, heart is hardened. And then 10 days we see God intervening. See, sometimes we just have to put injustice in the hand of God. He may not resolve things in 10 days, 10 months, 10 years, uh, or, or decades, but he will. And that's what David has done. He's put Nabal in the hands of God, and God takes Nabal out 10 days later, and Nabal is dead, and he gives a wonderful wife. Abigail uh, becomes his wife. Now, this is also a problem for David because David is now violating the Mosaic law, and he's beginning to multiply wives to himself. So we see part of his flawed character. Chapter 26 is another incident where he spares Saul's life. But after all of this, by the time we get to chapter 27, David uh, has to find some place to go. He's under incredible pressure. He's got 600 people to take care of, and Saul is trying to kill him. And so he goes over to the enemy, goes to the Philistines, and he goes to uh, Achish. And he is going to tell um, uh, Achish is the king of Gath, and he's going to tell Achish that he'll work for him. But uh Achish's men began to tell him uh that he's um um they're, they're somewhat suspicious of David, but David uh, is given Ziklag, it's another village that is down here in the in the south uh you See here's uh, Gath up here. And here's Ziklag down here. He's given this village where he can put up his men. And from this stronghold, he's going to attack the Amalekites and these other groups in the south. But he's not going to tell, um, he's not going to tell Achish who he's fighting. He's going to make it look like he's fighting the Israelites so that, that Achish will trust him. But he's actually continuing his messianic role to protect the Jewish people to protect Israel and to provide for them and to give them security. And so uh, he gains the trust of Achish. And then in chapter 28, we have the story shifting back to Saul, where Saul now is just at the end of his uh, rope. He has lost it completely spiritually to where he's going to seek help from a, uh, a, a witch, who, actually a diviner, a necromancer. Uh, the witch of Endor. And so he goes to her to find out what should he do. He Samuel's dead. He can't get the word from the Lord. God won't speak to him. What am I going to do? He is absolutely at panic. And let me tell you, this happens with believers. I have seen this a number of times. The biggest test you're ever going to face is when you get past 60. And if you haven't learned doctrine by then, you better start learning it after you get past 60 because things will happen. And I have seen people who have spent their life listening to the Word but not totally internalizing it, and they get up into times when they get some serious health problems, and they'll go to all kinds of New Age, uh, juju, black magic. they'll try anything. Anybody who says, you know... I can solve your problem. I can do it through acupuncture, acupressure. I can do it through through uh, aromatherapy. I can, you know, I can cure your stroke, your your cancer with you know. And they'll spend their fortune trying to solve a problem through something that is illegitimate. Now, I'm not saying every one of those are illegitimate, but they will. But they won't cure strokes, and they won't cure cancer. And I've seen. Older believers waste their fortunes in searching for a hope, and it just reveals that there's some, some, something empty in their spiritual life, and that's the way Saul was. He goes to this necromancer to find out if, if, how he can defeat the Philistines and if he can defeat the Philistines, and he wants her to call up Samuel from the grave. And when Samuel shows up, it scares her to death because she's never done this. She's been in in league with a demon the whole time, and now Samuel actually shows up. And then Samuel announces that Saul, you're going to die tomorrow. You and your sons will be with me, and that's exactly what happens, and it's just tragic. But before we get to chapter 31, uh, what happens is that we learn two things about David in chapter 29 and chapter 30. First of all, God providentially protects him from being in the Philistine army, which is going to attack Israel. And so the, the Philistines, other Philistines, become suspicious of David and tell Achish, you've got to get rid of him. So Achish sends him back home. When he goes back home, he discovers that there's been this assault by the Amalekites, and they've captured the wives and the children of many of his of, of his people. And so he goes after them, once again, functioning as a messianic king, protecting his people and providing security. And so he does that while Saul is going to the necromancer. And then the next day, of course, there's the, the battle between Saul and and the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, and his sons are killed. He is uh, probably fatally wounded, uh, arrows sticking out all parts of his body, and he begs his armor-bearer to kill him. His armor-bearer won't take the life of, of the Lord's anointed either, and so Saul has to fall on his sword. And so that is where we end in the story. Saul is dead. The Philistines decapitate him. They hang his body from the walls of uh, Beit Shan, And then uh, when the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who are distant relatives of Saul, hear about it, they have a night raid on, on uh, Beit Shon, and they take down his body and take it back across the Jordan, and they bury it uh, over in, uh, in, in Gilead. So that is how 1 Samuel ends. But that's not the end of the story, because remember, the story continues. 1 Samuel is really the first part of a whole book, a two-part book that couldn't be published in one volume, so they broke it into two scrolls, and you have 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. And the end of Second Samuel, you see the glorious grace of God in elevating Israel. They're given a leader, but not one they deserve. You've often heard me say that we often get leaders we deserve, We have a leader this nation deserves right now. We'll probably get another one in November. But every now and then, God gives us a leader we don't deserve. The Israelites had not turned back to God. There's no indication anywhere in 1 Samuel that they had turned to God. But God gave them a leader they didn't deserve. God graced them out and gave them somebody special, gave them David. And we need to pray in this country that God would give us a leader that we don't deserve a leader that will be a man after God's heart, because only then will we see this country turn around. And it's not going to happen just because of politics. It can only happen if we have a spiritual reformation in this nation, and otherwise we will continue to deteriorate. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We we know that there are some men who are godly men, have godly character, who are in positions of influence and positions of power. But the pressure they are under is is incredible. Uh, Maybe some of them have some failures and flaws in their life that that have been uh, brought to someone's attention. Maybe they're being blackmailed. Maybe they're being threatened. Uh, We see men who go to Congress, and they have all the right ideas and the right values, and then all of a sudden they've done a 180, and, and we can't explain it. And we see others that go to Congress, and they don't make much money, but within a few years, they're worth uh, maybe a million or two million or three million dollars. The corruption is extensive. And, Father, the only thing that can turn around a culture is a turn to your word, only a transformation from the inside out, only as the heart is changed. And it can only be changed by God, the Holy Spirit, and your word. And unless that happens, as long as this country has people and leaders who follow after the lust patterns of their sin nature, then this culture will be under your judgment, and it will continue to uh, suffer uh, greatly. Because what needs to happen is there needs to be a transformation of the heart, and that can only come by turning to you. And apart from that, there's no hope, and there's nothing to give us stability. But, Father, we pray that you would, in your grace, give us someone we don't deserve, someone who has uh, eternal values, someone who can lead and someone who can motivate and someone who understands what the real issues are. And we pray that you would provide such a person for us that we may continue to be a light to the world, sending out missionaries, proclaiming the gospel, and being a bulwark of faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.